0: Hello, and welcome back to the Queer Chaos. I'm your host and autumnal queen, John Melitris. Autumn means spooky season, and I'm all in. Now, all year round you can catch me dancing between the veil, but this season feels particularly spirited. The crisp air, the imaginal space of fantasy and play, the preparation for cold season, sweaters. I mean, I prefer a sweatshirt myself, but whatever. Anyway, let's jump right on in. On this week's episode, we're chatting queering therapy and psychedelics as treatment with Dr. M. Saltis, who is a licensed counselor and assistant professor in the Contemplative Psychotherapy and Buddhist Counseling Program at Naropa University, and Dr. Sarah Lewis, who is also a licensed counselor, chair of that Contemplative Psychotherapy Program, and faculty of the Psychedelic Assisted Therapy Certificate also at Naropa University. Now, as a somatic psychotherapist in training who loves psychedelics, this conversation is dear to my heart. One last thing before we dive into the deep end. Let me know you love the Queer Chaos with a follow on Instagram at Pod. Share that show all over your socials. And what really gets me turned on is a review on Apple Podcasts and a follow of the show wherever you get your pods. So let's sit back and let's jump right on in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: I'm Dr. M. Salta, so you all could just call me M. Um, I use they, them pronouns, and I'm queer and non-binary. I'm currently an assistant professor at Naropa University um, in their Contemplative Psychotherapy and Buddhist Psychology program. And then I also do counseling on the side um, within private practice and queer spaces, mostly working with trans folks from, I don't know, age of like five all the way to however old they are.
0: So, I actually want to ask you something, so, I should tell everybody that we're connected because we're kind of like ships passing in um a clinical organization, a queer clinical organization. I'll just name it queer asterisk um and you're you're leaving i'm I'm sort of passing in, so we' are yeah. two ships passing within this organization, which is how we became connected um and what you just said. Uh, in terms of youngsters is that I wanted to ask you a little bit about your research practice because didn't you just do your dissertation specifically about mental health care um, in terms of younger queer identified people?
1: So specifically we looked at um, trans and gender expansive youth, age 13 to 17. Um, and gosh, it was really pretty open-ended, but there's so much that came out of it. Um, I went into it really just wanting to get their stories about being queer, being trans and being youth and like what that's like moving through the world. So lots of stuff came up about mental health, just how they're navigating their identities, how they're navigating oppression in the world. all sorts of
0: things so yeah that's like Mm -hmm. my main interest i love the teens my favorite right well you know when i think of when i think of my own personal teenage years i think of the title of the show which is queer chaos (laughs) And I want to, and, and, you know, I love a good self plug. So I'm going to bring the title of the show in because I think what a better opportunity to talk about queerness and chaos together as like, you know, in the midst of this ever evolving global pandemic. Mm -hmm. And and I think about my friends and their numerous um sort of organizing of school pods and things like this during this pandemic, throwing their their own kids into mm-hmm. numerous situations that weren't quite familiar to them, taking them away from school, schooling them at home. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, you know, how the how this um the pandemic has sort of played into the mentality the spirit the embodiment of queer and trans youth
1: yeah so based on my research and anecdotally from my clinical work it's sort of been split i was like well i'm an extrovert this pandemic sucks for me in my queer community and i'm struggling so i I assumed everyone else would be struggling the same way (laughs) um but some struggled and some actually didn't it really depended on if school is actually a safe space for that you know some youth go to schools where (laughs) They're bullied a lot and they're not accepted because of their queerness and some other intersecting identities, too, if they were BIPOC or neurodivergent. And so having this break from bullying was actually really wonderful. Um, One of my research participants said COVID saved her life. She was contemplating suicide Mm. because she was so bullied um, for, you know, being trans and other things. And so that's hard to hear, but also wonderful that COVID gave that break, you know, from being home from school. And then for others, where they had a really strong queer community already at school with other kids their age, it's been really hard. So it was pretty split.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: really just depended on the person and, and where their sense of community was.
0: And what is your relationship to chaos?
1: <laughs> um, I feel like that's <laughs> this is like my life. I never really know what I'm doing or where, where I'm going, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Is that, I mean, well, is that a bad, uh, does that feel bad? Well, I guess maybe bad isn't the best term, but does it feel like you, you'd rather have something else or does it feel fine to like not know? Like, are you are you comfortable with the not knowing?
1: I'm okay with the not knowing, but I've worked really hard on being okay with the not knowing. <laughs> it's like work yeah. on my anxiety of having everything figured out and now I just get with the flow more.
0: And now you're moving to become a professor within a co- the Contemplative and Buddhist Psychologies program, right? Yes. So tell me a little bit about the intersecting for you um, of trans and queer identities and then the Contemplative Buddhist Intersection.
1: So I didn't know that much about it before I applied to teach there. <laughs> I was doing a, okay. I was doing a lot of readings. I was like, oh. That's the
0: work you did on not knowing. Like,
1: just go with that. I'm going to see that it's just opening. <laughs> I love the vibes at Naropa. I wanted to check it out. I feel like it fits so well. Uh, you know, I think the Buddhist psych and contemplative view of things is really inherently just in some ways because there's so much that goes against traditional Western therapies where we're doing things creatively. We are going with the flow. We're being in the present moment. We're trying not to be pigeonholed into like one view of mental health. Um, deconstructing binaries and power hierarchies too is all a part of that. And so I think it fits really lovely. Then there, yeah.
0: And I should uh, bring in that we are actually both located in the same place which is Colorado yes but you you migrated to Colorado from the east coast right yes like what's okay now people tell me in Colorado that I have a very east coast appeal and I'm I I think I sort of can like read into what they're saying but then like I don't really know because I'm like I'm not really from Colorado so I don't know what they're attempting to say by that but I'm wondering like. How do you, like, where, how do you feel about this, like, East Coast, sort of, like, where are we? Middle States? Colorado? I guess it's, like, it's sort of Midwestern, but not.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's located in the Midwest, but definitely has more West Coast vibes, at least in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: And do you feel your East, do you feel East Coast here?
1: I don't know if I feel like I'm East Coast. I wanted to get out of there to <laughs> come to Colorado. I'm like flannel and jeans uh, is like dressing up and like people are way more chill and have work-life balance out here. So that was a big appeal for me.
0: <laughs> right. Now I'm the opposite. Now now I go into I go into my closet and I just see like the throes of, of caftans. <laughs> like there's like a wall of caftans. <laughs> and I never wear them anywhere here. <laughs> And they're all just screaming me every time they're going in the closet, wear me, wear me. I'm like, but we're in a pandemic, there's nothing to do. <laughs> no, they can't
2: get dressed up for anything.
0: <laughs> Could you introduce yourself to everybody listening?
2: Yes, I'm Dr. Sarah Lewis, Associate Professor and Chair of Contemplative Psychotherapy and Buddhist Psychology at Naropa University, where I'm also Faculty Co-Director for Psychedelic Studies.
0: Great. So I have so many questions about psychedelic (laughs) studies, (laughs) but I would like to, to have more information about the psychedelic studies program, like where you are, is the program sort of still being built? Is it on its way? Mm -hmm. Um, And then like, just tell me all about it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we are preparing for our official um, fall um, sort of launch and announcement of um, the center and the program. So it's emerging in a way, but in another way, you know, folks at Naropa have for a long time been involved um, in psychedelic studies of their own, we might say. If you look at, you know,
0: same <laughs> really. Naropa's
2: history. <laughs> yeah, right. Naropa's history of sort of how it came together and the. 1970s you know bringing together beat poets and sort of radical thinkers um with buddhist practitioners you know i think it was sort of a a group of people who you know absolutely were using psychedelics in those days i think it was more in those days about sort of creativity and you know connecting with nature and spirituality um And now I'd say what we're up to a little bit more is looking at the therapeutic um, use of psychedelics. So there's a lot of faculty and students really, you know, at Naropa who are deeply interested in psychedelics in different ways. Um, So there's a core group of us faculty members. So I'm joined by Jamie Beachy, who is the head of the Master of Divinity program, and Travis Cox, who is the chair of ecopsychology. Um, so, Jamie's really interested also in using psychedelics uh, for chaplains and in um, spiritual care and palliative care. And then, Travis is really interested in kind of the ecological um, impact, you know, and how psychedelics might help the world come more into contact with understanding climate change and. Their connection to nature. Um, mm-hmm. So our big project for the center is designing a ten-month certificate for therapists, um, clinicians, and chaplains to train in psychedelic-assisted therapy.
0: Mm-hmm. And would that would be would that begin in the fall?
2: Um, we'll enroll the first cohort in March, twenty twenty-two. Right. Um, The admissions process will open in the fall. Um, We ran sort of a pilot program that we partnered with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They're the entity that's working with MDMA and bringing MDMA through the FDA process right now. We partnered with them last fall, and we did um, part of that training with a special Neuropa cohort. And there is um, quite a lot of interest. Um, So we're expecting, you know, a lot of applications to be coming in and we're really excited about Mm -hmm. it.
0: Yeah, I feel like I'm seeing, now this just because, uh, this could be because I'm in the therapeutic community now, but I feel like I'm seeing a lot of um, the use of psychedelics pop up in trials, in explorations all over Mm -hmm. the place, including MDMA, um, ketamine, psilocybin mm-hmm.
2: It's kind of int- I mean it's actually really interesting cuz I feel like, you know, um you know, we also have I mean psychedelics really it's like hello this is not new at all. I mean sacred plant medicines, right? have like been used by indigenous communities all over the world. I mean even indigenous Europeans, you know, used um psilocybin and so it's not like this is a new thing, but what is new is that um, you know different interest groups are working in a very highly conventional paradigm by bringing MDMA and psilocybin through the FDA review process. So that you know means um, establishing clinical trials, like just the way that any other medication would become legal and would be kind of released onto the market. Mm-hmm. But then something even more interesting has happened with psilocybin is that recently in Oregon, you know, this was at the time of the presidential elections in November, Oregon passed a measure of their own to legalize psilocybin for clinical use in two years. So they're almost sort of like circumnavigating around the FDA. Um, And the Oregon measure, you know, it's to authorize therapeutic use, but I think the folks who have been involved in that are really looking at psilocybin as, you know, a plant-based medicine, as something that has religious and spiritual, um, you know, kind of importance. And a lot of those people also don't want it restricted just to the clinical domain. So it's a really kind of fascinating landscape. Um, probably the FDA will approve MDMA in 2023, so not that far away. Probably they will approve psilocybin in 2024, mm-hmm. but we don't know. Like at any moment, FDA could be like, eh, sorry, not doing it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where things are at right now.
0: Right. And what is the what is at the core of the desire to explore the use of psychedelics? in therapy like why now
2: i guess it depends how you look at it so my colleague travis cox who i've mentioned he said you know that he feels like it's not an accident that the sort of psychedelic uh renaissance so to speak and we could probably deconstruct that term but he feels it's not an accident that that's happening at the same time as the climate crisis mm. so <laughs> so that's you know that's an interesting perspective with mdma You know, MAPS has been at this since the Mm mid-1980s. So it actually has been an extremely long, grueling process, you know, to actually even get in the doors of the FDA. So, so much, you know, advocacy, a huge amount of, you know, philanthropy has gone into, you know, trying to work with legislators, trying to work with the FDA, trying to educate the public. So it's almost like we're sort of seeing the tip of the iceberg now, but this work, you know, has really been going on since the mid-1980s. You know, and I think your, you know, original question of like, why, what's, what's the point? Um, You know, a lot of these psychedelics, even in terms of the clinical trials, it's like the kinds of people who are, you know, participants who are enrolling, it's people who have tried everything else. Mm. Um, you know, it doesn't, if you look at the kinds of participants who are participating in the studies, it doesn't tend to be, you know, people who are like then going to Burning Man the next weekend and have like tons of right. experience. <laughs> Can, of I to <laughs> Can I get it to go bag? Can I get it to go bag? I'm not saying there's not, you know, any of those folks in the studies, but it really tends to be people like you know, veterans, Mm -hmm. um, sexual assault survivors, people who have tried everything else, who have spent, you know, years, decades, even trying all kinds of therapies, all kinds of medications, people with, you know, suicide attempts. You know, it's almost like it's their last resort. Um, And I think that's particularly the case with MDMA for PTSD. So that's Mm -hmm. what the clinical trials right now are investigating. I think MDMA is probably helpful for a lot of things, but I think it's really, really, really helpful for Mm trauma. And the FDA has actually given um, something called breakthrough status to both MDMA and psilocybin. So they do that when the initial results are so promising that they actually begin to expedite the process. So they do that for other drugs, too. Like if there is a chemotherapy drug that just does, you know, incredibly well in the trials, they'll actually expedite it for ethical reasons, you know, knowing that there's people out there who need these life-saving drugs. So that's pretty amazing, I think, that the FDA has kind of given that breakthrough status to both MDMA and psilocybin.
0: What does it mean to the spirituality Mm -hmm. of specific cultures that use these drugs, um, for healing practices that could be indigenous tribal what have you what does it mean to regulate them through the fda in terms of their spirituality in terms of their use
2: i love this question and i've thought so much about this um i see it in two different ways so in one way i think exactly what you're saying john is um it's you know i see it as as problematic in one way You know, because on the one hand, we think like, oh, this is great, like it's going to be legal and all these people are going to get access. But then what you're essentially doing is, you know, a governmental regulatory board and and entity is going in and taking a sacred plant medicine, um, controlling it, regulating it, right, like determining access, kind of setting the boundaries of legality, so I see that as really problematic. And, you know, there are some indigenous groups who have actually really opposed things like broad legalization. You know, so the Native American church has taken kind of an interesting stance of saying that, like, no, like they don't want peyote, you know, for for example, being j- just kind of like broadly legalized um for, you know, for this exact reason that they don't um, you know understandably think that this should be something regulated by the u.s government Mm -hmm. and then on the other hand i see so in you know buddhism we have this idea of skillful means so skillful means is like um you know bodhisattvas or people who are oriented towards helping sentient beings in the world will do sort of like whatever it takes to be of benefit and to be of help. And sometimes those skillful means are like a little outrageous. Sometimes skillful means, you know, means going into spaces where maybe you wouldn't ordinarily go, you know, like into, um, you know, Congress or Senate or, or the Senate or the kind of medical FDA, you know, domain to kind of work with those systems, you know, almost like from the inside out in order to kind of benefit, um, sentient beings. So I feel like I really hold like both of those views at the same time. Um, and I don't, I don't know if they can be reconciled. It's almost like I just sort of see both of those truths, um, sitting side by side. Mm.
0: Um, I'm wondering how you see the queer and trans community benefiting from psychedelic use and therapy.
1: I feel like it will be so great. Um, I feel like a lot of the queer trans folks I know, like already do this kinds of work, um, legally or not as a benefit of helping depression or trauma that they've been through, whether they're doing that on their own or in some sort of guided way, um, with different retreats and things like that. And then it is so beneficial and helpful. And so I'm really excited. Um, I can hold both views at the same time, right? I know it can be difficult for Indigenous communities in some ways. And with the queer and trans community, I feel like it can be so
2: important. There's a lot of kind of interest right now too in, in group work with psychedelics, you know, and particularly thinking about, um, you know, sort of like affinity groups, um, coming together in, in group spaces, you know, so I, I have a, a, a wondering of some, you know, could something, um, like that, you know, for the queer community, like be it, you know, having like specifically queer spaces, you know, where people are doing psychedelic work together in groups. And something that tends to happen in these groups is that, of course, people are sort of working on their own, you know, like individual trauma and background. But then things kind of emerge in the group space, you know, that's shared and that's collective,
0: Mm.
2: um, which I think is really powerful. Yeah, I think that'd be amazing.
0: (laughs) And when you say affinity group, I just want to give some clarification to people that are listening. Are you talking about people with shared identities and commonalities? Mm-hmm.
2: Kind of. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because um I've I've had this chat with with other folks on this podcast. I um share space with the Radical Fairy community which very much mm-hmm. um kind of delves into that i mean we we have like 500 queer and trans folks to send in in the dark forests of tennessee somewhere i never say where because we don't want other people coming (laughs) we descended to the dark woods of tennessee (laughs) for seven days to very much you know do psychedelics um be in community together have these sort of shared experiences in 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 a place that feels safe, that is also closely connected to the more than human world. Um, And then to, Mm -hmm. to maybe, maybe there is some processing of trauma, whether that's in, in one of our larger heart circles around a, around a fire or that's in smaller groups of people just wandering through the woods, you know? Yeah. So that made me think of that. I love
2: that. Yeah. And it's also making me think, you know, um, all of us are, on on, in this conversation now are you know therapist types um but where you're talking about john's also just making me think like you know we have such a limited view really of like what's therapeutic like Mm -hmm. what, what you're describing that week like that just sounds so powerful transformative meaningful you know everything that we might say about what we consider therapeutic and i think there's something about kind of euro you know american model of of therapy of just like sitting you know in a in a clinical room with like one other person you know telling like someone that some professional that you've just met all of your deepest darkest secrets it's a little strange actually Mm -hmm. um isn't it so I think that's part of my interest, you know, in the therapeutic use of psychedelics too. Like, are there ways, you know, to actually kind of move beyond this, um, you know, this sort of way of doing therapy, which I mean, I'm a practicing therapist, so I obviously, you know, subscribe to it and I think it's it's beneficial to people, but is it limited, Mm -hmm. you know, is talking limited, is verbal processing of our, you know, of our thoughts and feelings, is wonderful. But I think that's just one way, you know, of, of working with um, what's sort of happening in our world.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also interesting to me because I feel like this, this very like post World War II, Cold War era moralizing that was happening within mm-hmm. the U.S. Um, makes us feel a certain way about drugs, if you will, drugs, like everything falls under the umbrella of the word drugs you know and we and we feel our our own resistances to you know things that that are plant-based things that were found in nature because we've been told to dare Mm -hmm. (laughs) or 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 other such sort of entities yeah
2: but it's like it doesn't make a lot of sense you know it's like why is alcohol legal and just like normal and you know sanctions um right and mm-hmm. caffeine and tobacco you know so so it's sort of like wh- how how is it that certain you know substances make it on the like okay list and other substances make it on the you know schedule 1 illegal list and you know so there's a really fascinating kind of politicized history of that and you know a lot to say i think about um you know, ways that um, historically excluded groups, you know, um, really, uh, you know, there's a huge cost for those communities. Um, And there's a lot of interesting work happening right now with, um, you know, among different um, BIPOC folks who are interested in, in psychedelics, you know, talking about wanting to bring these medicines into their communities, but, you know, kind of recognizing that for, you know, BIPOC um, communities right you know the the it's the question of of using something that's illegal that's currently illegal obviously has a you know a lot more um kind of fear around it understandably mm-hmm. so i'd say that that's a pretty big you know topic of interest for the Neuropa center you know of 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 how to work more with historically excluded groups and um you know really take this seriously mm-hmm.
0: So Em and I um, were chatting a little bit about queer and trans youth. um, And I was wondering, Mm -hmm. are there, are there a, is there like an age limit on who can sort of participate in this or eventually maybe um, participate in psychedelics for use in therapy? And then also maybe like, well, how do you have that conversation with parents who maybe have a different mindset than queer and trans youth, you know?
2: Oh my gosh i love that question and i hope that like as this does become legal i hope people will like specialize you know in working with youth and again i think like groups could be so amazing and powerful you know i don't know what i mean you know probably when mdma which is going to be the first one that's you know legal um i think because the way the studies are done it will just be for adults but The FDA, you know, because it's going through that process, they actually will then require that more clinical trials are done for adolescents. And then I've even heard that, you know, and I think this is the case with like most or maybe even all drugs, I'm not sure, that go through, that then they might even have to look at it for younger populations. So that is fascinating. And this is years down the road, but that's fascinating to think about. Like, what would it be like? you know, for um, a a child or, you know, a teen who has a traumatic event to actually be able to kind of work, you know, at that moment, at that time in their life with something like MDMA, you know, rather than years later, having to then like process a childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's a really interesting question. Now, ketamine is already legal. So, um, ketamine assisted therapy is, you know, is a way of, um, using a, a psychedelic medicine that can be done right now and legally, and it's very powerful. And I know that there are some, um, clinicians who are willing to work, um, you know, with, with, with teens. Um, I'm not sure really what their kind of age cap is, you know, and obviously the parents would need to be involved, but, you know, I think, um, even just kind of looking at the scientific literature, it's really hard to argue with data. I was thinking about like life changing that would be
1: you know, for queer and trans youth to already have access to ketamine and then other drugs, like compared to pharmaceuticals, you know, you get stuck on them. They just slap them on like young kids and teens often. And then you're on that for so long. But to have this, um, you know, assisted therapy in this way could be so impactful. And then to be able to do group healing with that too, especially with queer and trans youth, to be able to have that experience together, like how amazing that would be.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. definitely and i think ketamine you know it's almost like each psychedelic sort of has like i think different like they're all you know they all can be helpful but i think they each have like their sort of special things that they're good for and it looks like you know ketamine is really really helpful for um for suicide you know for people having thoughts of suicide and treatment resistant depression you know so especially thinking about High rates of suicide among trans youth, you know, like that would be, um, I want that to happen, you know, and I want it to happen safely. I mean, so that's the other thing is is psychedelics have, you know, great therapeutic potential, and they also have um, more risk you know, in, in, in some ways we could argue that there might be less risk than like, you know, antidepressants or antipsychotics Mm -hmm. being used. Um, but yeah, you know, definitely not without risk.
0: Yeah. I wonder how, how like pharmaceutical companies will feel (laughs) about this introduction into the world of therapy.
2: No, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting thing, you know, and it's, um, it's fascinating to begin to kind of look into, you know, these different companies that are sort of bringing psychedelics through, um, MDMA, you know, is like pretty straightforward. That's all being done with maps. Psilocybin, there's two main, um, I don't know if company is the right word, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess there, there are companies, companies or organizations and, Um, One is USONA and one is Compass. And, um, you know, both of those organizations have really, really different ethics and really different thoughts about, you know, is this sort of uh, being done for the benefit of of all, like the way that MAPS is doing it. It's a public benefit corporation. So it's sort of set up in a way where no one is going to like own um, the medication. No one will like own the protocols. In the psilocybin world, it's, you know, it's getting a little interesting that people are, you know, wanting to kind of put patents on psychedelic compounds or wanting to trademark or patent things like, you know, having, um, music playing, having eye shades. It's like, how do you own that? How do you control something like that? You know, there's a lot of venture capitalists, you know, sort of coming into these spaces as, as investors, Mm. um, you know, so it's almost like anything in our, in, in our human realm, you know, it has sort of a, a, a good side and a not, kind of not so good mm-hmm. side.
0: How about have you run across, um, like other, other countries outside the U.S. that maybe have been working with psychedelics like and therapy for a lot longer than we've even considered? Um, I mean, I know you could, you could really look towards more indigenous cultures and things that have been, you know, using mm-hmm. using sacred plants and in spiritual and healing practices. But how about like in the way in which maps and and currently we are mm-hmm. using psychedelics or exploring psychedelics in therapy? You
2: know, the US actually seems to be sort of leading that. Mm. Um Interestingly, it's like, oh, wow, we're actually leaving something positive in the world, you know, for once. <laughs> I mean, if you look at, um, you know, the, the Netherlands, um, they're more sort of on the legalization side, right? So psilocybin is completely legal um, in the Netherlands. Um, you know, so Europe is a little more sort of ahead of the game in terms of um, legalization of drugs. Um, you know, and there's of course like a lot happening in Europe too around around this. So there's, um, I forget what it's called, but whatever the European entity is, that's the same as our FDA. They're actually sort of collaborating with MAPS so that all of the data coming through, you know, in the US will apply to whatever the the European standard is. Um, and there's lots of MAPs trainings happening in Europe as well. Um, But I think you're right, John, that like, probably the, you know, the, the place to look, you know, is within indigenous communities. And that starts getting really tricky because, you know, we don't want to engage in cultural appropriation. Um, And then on the other hand, it's like, wow, there's so much to learn, you know, about creating a container, about really helping people work through, you know, some of these difficult states. Um, I actually wrote my um, master's uh, paper on the topic of ayahuasca and people going to Peru and you know, using ayahuasca and ceremonies. And then, you know, there are some people who end up having a really difficult time and you know, might even develop psychosis or you know, o- other mental health challenges as a result of doing ayahuasca and having what some people call a spiritual emergency or a spiritual crisis, mm. um, you know. So um, that's something that can happen, you know, when when people just sort of swiftly, like, enter another culture, right? They don't have any context for what they're doing, and then they go back home. Whereas, you know, if if you look at the, the ways that these indigenous communities actually hold ceremony, you know, there's a lot of kind of um, protection in place and sort of community ways of, of holding people and, and understanding what it actually is, you know, to have a psychedelic experience. Um, and it can sometimes take people, you know, months or even years, you know, to, to really work through a psychedelic experience and it's not always bad, but, um, you know, people sometimes really need help to do that. And so I think, you know, here, um, In a Euro-American context, we're pretty underdeveloped in terms of really understanding, you know, like what it really is to help someone work through something that might take months or years. From a conventional clinical perspective, we might see that as really problematic. And I think in a more indigenous context, you know, where where people are working with these psychedelics, um, you know, they would say like, well, that's just the process of the medicine. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to learn. Mm.
0: So I want to bring in this phrase, and then I want to get um, both of your responses to it. So queering mm-hmm. therapy.
1: I think to me it's just so tied into a lot of what we're talking about, of like. <laughs> Going against colonialism and like the Western ways to view therapy of like, here I shall sit as the expert in my chair and then you tell me the things and I tell you the things and that just does not work for most people and it's certainly not queer. So queer therapy to me is bringing in whatever works, you know, it's not just sitting across from someone, it's going out in the world and doing things, bringing in creative things, doing the Um, psychedelic assisted therapy like we're talking about getting rid of those power hierarchies and just meeting people where they're at and freedom of expression is so important for everyone you know i think queer therapy isn't just for queer people that is really impactful if we can like queer therapy for every person to feel like they can express themselves and look at the ways like oppressive forces have impacted their lives too whether they're straight trans you know anything like that That was it in a very small nutshell,
2: but I could could talk about it forever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of, um, you know, in the contemplative program at Naropa, our, um, uh, I don't know what slogan, (laughs) that's probably not the right word, (laughs) but our kind of framework is this idea of brilliant sanity And so what brilliant sanity means is that, you know, we see inherent wisdom um, sort of in all aspects of, you know, human life and the mind and the body. And so even things that we might, you know, typically think of as something that we have to like get over or work with. So even things like depression, you know, or anxiety or trauma, from the brilliant sanity perspective, you know, it's like how can you actually see the inherent wisdom and and goodness, and that, you know, I think that's sort of radical in a way you know and it's certainly a radical idea for a client who's like, what do you mean I'm coming to therapy because I want to get rid of my depression what do you mean that there's wisdom in there you know and so we might think like, well look around you like look around the world right now I mean maybe people who are experiencing depression are actually really deeply attuned to what's happening in our world so from a certain perspective it's like, Maybe it's problematic, you know, to not be depressed in a way, Mm -hmm. right? Or like the same with anxiety. Are you actually deeply tuned into and feeling the kind of precarious nature of our world? Um, So I don't know if that's queering therapy exactly, but it it certainly is like challenging, you know, a, a dominant view of there's like health and sanity on one side, and then there's pathology and illness on the other you know, so from this perspective, it's more like, how do we really see, you know, all that that is emerging in our bodies, our minds, our collective experience as containing, you know, wakefulness and containing sanity and Mm -hmm.
0: health. I love that because I think so often, you know, since we're in the US, of the culture of this idea of radical individualism, like we almost become our symptoms, or we're expected to become our symptoms. But yet, I love the idea you brought in that we can just be really a reflection of our environment or a reflection of. The energy is currently going on in the world. Like whenever the whenever the new moon comes around, I always say I'm in my dark moon fields. <laughs> it's not that I'm depressed. I don't have depression. Yeah. I'm just in the dark moon energy fields right now. <laughs>
2: yeah, and that's like that's a part of being human. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like sometimes a little bit strange to kind of think about our mental health field and you know, from a dominant kind of conventional paradigm it's like what are we aiming for like just to be these beings that are like all happy and um self-actualized and it's like no life isn't like that you know so it's like when people have trauma it's like yes like look at what you've gone through like that is the natural response um that is your you know nervous system like you know trying to protect you and keep you safe Mm -hmm. um so i don't know i'm always about challenging the (laughs) conventional world out there because, like it's so
1: limited. i feel like that is like so inherently queer you know before you got on i was telling john i didn't know that much about contemplative psychotherapy and buddhist life and i was like oh this is like so inherently queer and so inherently what marnie doing right like being able to not have a binary view of like what's right or wrong or healthy or unhealthy like Burning all binaries is important, and that is queer. Like burn them yeah. all down. There's so much more gray and rainbows to the world than just just one way to look at things, and that that is so important.
0: I also think about the um, the sort of alchemical processes and mythology that say, you know, we are both masculine and feminine. We can hold those sort of shifting dualities within us, but then the binary came along, and then it got externalized and separated. Yes. <laughs> uh.
2: Yes, I feel like and that could be like a whole nother, you know, yeah. podcast that that, that I, I'd love to hear about, you know, is is it now like we should, you know, sort of erase, you know, like I ideas that there's like masculine and and, and feminine principles in, in all of us? Like, do we need sort of like a new paradigm, like a new way to think about that? And I'm so interested in that mm-hmm. question.
0: You know, we should probably um, inform people as to what Naropa is, since we're we're all on the inside. <laughs> but but people yes. listening are probably like, "What is that? What is that Naropa thing they keep talking about?" <laughs> Sarah, would you like to give a, a short spiel about what Naropa is or its founding?
2: Sure. Yes. So, Naropa University um, is an accredited university in Boulder, Colorado. It started out in. Um, I think 1974, as the Naropa Institute, as I was saying at the beginning of our conversation, the Institute emerged as a collaboration uh, between um, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who is a Tibetan Buddhist um, lama who had come to the West um, after fleeing his homeland in Tibet. Um, And he was a very sort of radical, creative thinker. And he, along with... um, uh, Jack Kerouac and some of the Beat poets um, established the Naropa Institute as a place in Boulder for people to gather and explore the arts and theater and writing and uh, Buddhist practice. And so now since 1974, it's become um, a university. And I think we're probably uh, known for our therapy programs and our divinity school um, and still our writing program.
0: and talk about queer, creative, psychedelic <laughs> right? energy. It was basically coalesced to found to Naropa, basically. <laughs> yeah so so the psychedelic studies program feels very much like things are coming home to roost
2: (laughs) that's exactly it so it's like oh it's an emerging program but it's like yeah i mean this has sort of been at the heart of what naropa folks have been up to um you know naropa's sort of logo or motto is transform yourself transform the world Mm -hmm. um so it seems really in line with what we've been discussing
0: so, before we go, I want to ask you both um, what is something that you're looking forward to coming up this year?
1: I was looking forward to getting started on Europa. <laughs> it's my first uh, semester being full time there as faculty. So, I'm really excited to be in that environment and for my adventure together with the students and with
2: Sarah and the other faculty. So, <laughs> yeah. Yay. We're excited for you to join us, Em. Um, I'm excited for that. And I'm really excited to start getting the applications for the psychedelic assisted therapy certificate. Um, you know, I think it's such an opera, you know, it's like, of course, like this field is a very white um, heteronormative space in some ways, particularly the psychedelic spaces that are, you know, very clinical in nature and research focused. So I think that we have a really great opportunity at Neuropa, you know, to really think about the, the folks that we're admitting and really intentionally crafting, um, you know, a, a cohort that's filled with BIPOC therapists and queer therapists and, and therapists, you know, from all kind of different identities and experiences, um, so I'm really excited to see those applications start to come and this, in.
0: Is this in-person or will it be a hybrid or virtual? Or
2: um, It's mostly online mm. because we want people to be able to uh, participate from all over the world, maybe. Um, and then there'll be two in-person retreats in Colorado. Mm.
0: Yeah, so therapists, clinicians, and chaplains if they're interested can go to naropa i think it's where naropa.edu i don't remember yes it's (laughs) naropa.edu
2: and there's there's a page for psychedelic (laughs) studies
0: awesome well thank you both of you for coming on and having this conversation and
1: thanks for having us thank you
0: Are you an LGBTQ identified individual that has a humorous story of failure? Attempted a pandemic hobby that didn't go as planned? A witch whose spell brought unexpected results? Tried cooking a new dish for a dinner party that veered horribly off course? Queer Chaos Podcast wants to hear from you. At this show, we rally around the queer art of failure and experiments that didn't quite make it. Email your funny trips down the tried it lane to queerchaospodcast at gmail.com and your story might land right here on our little show. Please include a first name you'd like to be known by and the city town you're located in. We won't share any other information. We ain't trying to dox a bitch. And please make it a story and not just the result. Like, my cat puked on my date. Queer Chaos is hosted and co produced by me, John Melitris, and recorded at House of Pod in Denver, Colorado. Our podcast cover art was created by Evan Lorenzen, who you can find on the Instagrams at Art and Such Evan. That's A R T A N D S U C H E V A N. Evan is also an amazing tattoo artist based in Denver, so check them out. You can find Queer Chaos on Instagram at Queer Chaos Podcast and online at QueerChaosPodcast.com. If you have some coins you can throw our way, we are on the Patreon, which is linked through our website, QueerChaosPodcast.com. Those coins go to monthly studio fees, website, and admin upkeep. And don't forget to send us your stories to queercastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next show, embrace the queer chaos.